Hello and welcome back to Art Smack, the only podcast you need to listen to to learn about the art world. I'm your host, Jerry Gagosian. And I'm Matt Capasso. And this week we had a very long and extensive conversation with the famous and some may say infamous Stefan Simkowitz. Stefan Hildy and I had a long conversation about the future of the art market galleries, dealers, and everything in between the economy, politics. Where painting and art may be going. Yeah. You just got to listen to it at this point. So just wanted to preface this. Uh, We did a phone call with Stefan. So apologies for the audio for this episode. Uh, We did the best that we could. We really enjoyed the conversation. We thought it was enlightening surprising and i really learned a lot what about you yeah he's got a lot to say so welcome back to art smack this is episode 16 enjoy I'm good. I've been binge watch, binge listening to 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 all your episodes to prepare myself for today's uh, uh, <laughs> podcast marathon. Oh yeah, what's your favorite episode so far? You know, I you know I'm all excellent, um, and you guys are a great combination. It's uh, and, and you love each other, so it's uh, <laughs> it's a podcast about love in in my book. Well, that is true. We do love each other. And um, the good thing is that I have Matt here to keep me in line. And then I can go off on my, you know, loosey-goosey philosophical tangents. And then he gets to uh, bring me back into reality sometimes. So it's a, it could be a good combination. So I think what, 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 one of my favorite ep- episodes was Matt's sort of breakdown of you know, his, you know pr- promoting his art newsletter about investment and all of this stuff, which was interesting. Um, and then I like the uh, I, I like the art fair uh, analyses ones. I, I think they're all pretty good. Um, and it's also interesting because, after I, and when I say binge listening, I mean I've been binge listening. I probably listened to. Ildi and Matt yesterday for six hours straight. <laughs> oh my God! I'm so sorry. <laughs> That's like watching Lawrence of Arabia three times in a row. So, but I think what emerges from it is your voice. Um, each of you, both of you, have an individual voice, and I think one thing that's interesting about the art world is that to actually understand someone's voice, it, it takes time. You actually have to spend time listening to them and. Understand what are they saying, saying it, how are they saying it? Because some people say things very well in the art world, but not good people, and then other people say things very badly in the art world and are good people. And what emerges from me is like, is the voice. And, and also, Hildy, what's interesting about you is you don't use international art speak. You speak in a very sort of accessible way. But what emerges over a long period of time is, a, is sort of a, a, an acute intelligence and awareness of the system in a very sophisticated way. I think that's one of my takeaways 
I'm listening to you for a long time. And Matt, who, who uh, don't know at all, um, I was just actually blown away by your insight and, frankly, how aligned you are in your analyses of the art world with my thinking. Um, mm. So it's almost like finding a friend in the desert who, who kind of yeah. understands what I rant and rave about all the time, maybe with a voice that's a little more inflamed. So it, well, it, that, it, it was nice. That, that's amazing, Stefan. So why don't we start there? So, you know, we talked about the investment stuff, but is there a particular conversation that we've had on Arts Mac, Hildy and I, our thoughts, our views that you've aligned with that you want to kind of just highlight? We can kick things off here. Well, you know, I think that there are a lot of things in, in, in your analysis of the art world that I agree with. So, especially the, you know, the art fair roundups. Hildy talks about going to NADA, where it's more affordable, where perhaps you can get access if everything's not sold out. Um, and I think the analysis is correct about how difficult it is to collect art. But I disagree with the. Um, with the accepted premise that access is difficult and that you should focus on buying art in these ways. Um, and I think that, you know, you, one of the things that is repeated in your art fair themes is that it's very difficult to buy art and you've got to sort of uh, play this very particular game. Um, and I don't think so. I think um, I think there is a, a natural supply shortage of good art, but we have to question whether there is a supply shortage. Is this a myth that is created in general as an accepted operating principle of the art world because of the way that art is promoted? Or can the supply shortage be uh, remedied somehow? Um, so one of the things that, as a, as a collector, and I would proudly say, as a largely blacklisted collector from the system, um, <laughs> from someone who does not have particularly good access, um, you know, I wouldn't say I, I don't have access at all because I think everyone has access who pays quickly. Um, and I do pay, the, I pay quickly when I receive an invoice, I pay within three business days, five business days, which is, uh, which is, uh, basically very rare. Uh, in the business, you know, a, a lot of collectors, especially better collectors, feel it is their um, their natural right to take time to pay. Um, something I've experienced many times. You know, the more connected the collector, the more famous the collector, um, the more well boarded the collector is. And when I say well boarded, the more museum boards they are. They feel a compunction that it is uh, it is it is ethically okay to pay slowly. So the higher up you go up the food chain. So not only do you make the sale, but the money comes in with, with, the, with, with a slower pace. This is my experience. I think what the business does, if I can use an example, is I'm a gallery and I decide to represent uh, Matt, who has made a body of work. And I say to you, and I'm a gallerist now, so I understand this dynamic because I have uh, I've opened a few galleries in the last uh, two years and we've done close to 42 shows now, all solo shows, no group shows. Um, I want to give artists a presentation to solo exhibitions. And I say, look, Matt, in nine months, I've got a slot in my one gallery, and I'm going to represent you in a solo show. And during that nine-month period, you're not allowed to sell your art to anyone else um, because I'm giving you this big break. 
and uh, all that work you've been making in the studio, you know, if I could ask you respectfully, don't sell it because this big break is going to let me build a market for you and get all these collectors. And Matt says, great, I'm so excited. This is my big break. And what happens is Matt has no money. He's, he, you know, I, I'm making an assumption that you guys are not affluent artists, that you guys are middle-class artists to poor artists, uh, you, you know, uh, there is a lot of affluence in the business, that's another category altogether. And what's happening is all these galleries, as they open up many spaces and multiple venues, are essentially, without financial compensation or consideration, immediately taking the entire supply of production off the market, in addition to not putting capital into the system to help the artists produce more supply. So I think that there is an enormous, um, an enormous uh, false supply shock that constantly happens to the system, especially in emerging contemporary art, especially uh, as emerging galleries and mid-sized galleries and large galleries have expanded their footprints and just have an enormous appetite for content, i.e. exhibitions, uh, because they have to fill these spaces with something. And this has created a false supply dynamic in the marketplace where there is actually a lot more supply than the market wants to admit and everyone accepts this condition and accepts these operating principles as stuck as this is the accepted wisdom this is the conventional wisdom and I think it's a I think what it does it creates total lack of liquidity for artists to produce material to finance studios adequately to buy the best supplies and to make work under conditions where they're not staring at a rack of paint tubes at an art supply company and thinking, gee, I can't afford this $80 tube of titanium or cadmium. I'm going to go for the slightly cheaper one, especially in this phase of what I call emerging contemporary, which is, for all effective terms, a, a, a process of research and development in artistic production for artists who are emerging and developing their skills, their ideas, and their execution and output of these things. And I think everyone, everyone just sort of, you know, sort of accepts this. So, so I, I think that um, this, um, this lack of supply also creates pricing power in a system that, that has expanded rapidly and in a system that, that, that does not have to invest working capital into the artist studios up front. Uh, because the artists will scrape, suffer, produce, and they also don't really care if the artist with better working capital will make cultural artifact, product, artwork, whatever you want to call it, that is of higher quality than if they had more working capital. Because all of the working capital in the gallery system essentially is invested in expansion in their gallery footprint and as well in doing art fairs, which is the conventional wisdom that galleries are told is the way that they can get exposure to collectors and get um, and also compete with their peer groups in attracting artists against each other. Does that make sense to you, any of that? Yeah, of course. Actually, it's funny. I uh, wrote down a question, even though I told you I wouldn't, that I think relates exactly to this Um Follow By the way, I would love you to ask questions because I like I can't just go on like an endless stream of dribble for an hour and a half. So actually, please. I bet you could. But here, follow me. This is a written question, but follow me in my written question um, as it applies to what you just said. 
Um, uh, my question is, uh, for a moment, Shara Hughes and Flora Yuknovic were trading in secondary auction uh, prices above Cecily Brown. And then the question is, does that make sense? And then this follow-up question is, what do you think is coming for the market as interest rates go back to being a normal feature in the economy in general, in general as the economic um, demand slows? The market has sped up so fast, and as you talk about, you know, these galleries not making investments in the artists and as there the these careers I, I, that are on I, I, wait, wait, wait just, let, me, let me finish. That yeah, are I, on I, like I, super I they're, they're on like super mess. Like these careers are pump and dump. I mean I, I remember back in the day when we used to think a five year career was a short career. Now we have careers that are like you know two years long and that's it they burn out they flame out so quickly because everything just gets dumped at auction as fast as they're going and I'm just wondering what your take is on this because I you know as much as everybody likes to you know worship at the shrine of the mega galleries and the mega minus galleries and some of these mid-tier galleries it's like they're very guilty at destroying um, a lot of artists' uh, careers. And one of the things that you've been criticized for in the past is, you know, not you know, maybe leaving some artists' careers in the, you know, in the wake, like maybe a artist's career didn't take off that you were working with or something. And it's like, but look at what these galleries are doing. They're acting so irresponsibly in the marketplace with these artists and they're not, they're offering zero compensation. And it's like those galleries, they're not in the news for being like, you know, demons who burn careers. But then you, on the other hand, have had, you know, a lot of neg negative media press. And it's very interesting to me that you've had so much negative press because I see galleries literally doing the, like, same thing but worse and at, like, a speed that is whiplash fast, like, way faster. Well, let me unpack a few questions. There are a lot of galleries who invest in artists. So, so, so broadly speaking, you know, I, th there are there, there are a lot of galleries who do invest in artists who are committed. But I don't think those galleries, especially younger ones, understand the terms and conditions of the business as a whole and operate under a sort of a mythology that is is not pragmatic, maybe ineffective, and also is somewhat damaging because they accept certain principles as fact that are not. Um, I think every situation is different. I'm going to speak personally for myself. I never have dumped artists who I actually work with. Guys like Parker Ito, I bought 10 works from, 20 works from. I never had a consistent working relationship with them. I bought a lot of art in my life. So the description of working with an artist, 
are two different things. I work with Petra Courtright. I've worked with Petra Courtright since 2011. I still do. I work with Core Paul. I've worked with Core since 2012. I still do. Core appeared at market. His market went away at the auction market. I continued financing him and working with him for three years. I financed Core, you know, where we sold barely anything. He was able to go to the studio under the same conditions that he was when the market was 200,000 at auction. And today I finance Core Paul. He's now with Kavi Gupta. He's now with Gallery 1957. He's doing great things, showing his production is dynamic. His exhibitions are dynamic. So I speak for myself in the artists who I actually work with and finance. I have financed artists who have been successful, who lose the market, and I continue financing them. So as far as I'm concerned, what I do and what people perceive that I do are two different mm -hmm. realities. And you can call these artists I work with. You can go to the artists who I represent on my gallery website. There are 12 of them. And you can ask them the conditions under which they are represented. Some like Elizabeth Ibarra, who I met four years ago at jury duty one day, was a factory worker at American Apparel. I have not made any money, very little money, with Ibarra over the four-year period. And every month I continue to support her. I provide her a stable living situation for her and her family. She's uh, she's got a she's got a child. Uh, her husband is it, you know lost his job unfortunately, um, and they're great. Lily, so so I think what I this idea of what I do is incorrect. I make a decision with an artist, and I say mm -hmm. I'm going to work with you. And I've worked with people for 10, 11 years. Sergio Tukwekloti, the Ghanaian artist who I met in 2014. Shana McCoy, who I met in 2014, who was working as a receptionist at the Renaissance Hotel in Minneapolis when she was 21, has not worked since. She's 28 years old. She's worked as an artist ever since. And there were years where I didn't sell work. The galleries are under pressure to finance those artists upon sales because it's a one-to-one -one relationship. I have a slightly different system. I take a lot more risk. I have very little, you, you know, capital for other things besides investing in art. I, I go through periods even today where I'm stressed for money because all of my money goes to the artist. I often go through stages where I borrow from a bank to make sure I can pay my artists on time because my clients don't pay on time. And, you know, if I look at my receivables book, it's ugly. I have auction houses who owe me money who haven't paid me for work that I've sold in evening sales. Uh, to collectors. I have collectors, I won't mention the names, big name collectors who take a year to pay. I was asking a friend of mine to talk to a very famous uh, uh, client and, the, uh, you know, and I was listening and the client was like, well, I don't, I take a year to pay, I don't care. I'm, you know, you know, so there are all of these dynamics. Like what happens to these artists at these big galleries, especially these emerging artists who are being signed by young galleries when the market dynamic changes. And I think what's happened today, I see a lot of big galleries who never understood emerging contemporary moving into the space and signing artists who are frankly nowhere near ready for this kind of scale of representation who are not even particularly good but they're grabbing inventory and they're grabbing artists because right. they're like Armin Reich is a good example of that or but you're mm -hmm. also seeing the margins with Timothy Taylor with uh, with Pierre Scarstedt you're seeing it you're seeing mm -hmm. with Susan Bilfett in LA so I think what you're seeing is a much lower quality of production entering into this high-end system. The price, the market for million-dollar-plus works 
is sort of has been weakening ever since the pandemic and has been weakening as new collectors are entering the marketplace don't want to take that much financial risk and so, so i think you see you, you see you see a different dynamic and i don't think those galleries are lens to supporting and developing that R&D phase of emerging contemporary, which requires many years of development. Really, in mm -hmm. my opinion, it takes 10 years, you know, mm -hmm. to get an artist into a state where they're sort of ready for prime time. And I think this development phase has been compressed, and what we're seeing is essentially the distribution of essentially a very low-quality kind of artistic production where the artists themselves haven't had the time to develop. I can tell you categorically, watching Corpo, Corpo is an extremely strong artist today. Makes mm -hmm. an extremely high quality work of art, conceptually uh, in the studio, and or you know, and I can talk about many names. But I think the way the market has been built, and I think to a large part the art fairs are responsible for this, the speed. But I think that there is a different path, um, and I follow that path. I follow my own path. You know, as you know, I get criticized across the board for it. I think the galleries, as they compete and realize the complexity of emerging, also understand that, gee, they've expanded, they've got no capital, they're under risk, they're having these artists leave them. If, if they're really responsible galleries, small galleries, they have artists leave them for bigger guys. The small galleries having the, you know, the small galleries scared of Francois Gebali taking them, then Francois Gebali scared of David Kordansky taking them, and then David mm -hmm. Kordansky scared of Ivan Wirth taking them. You know, so, <laughs> yep. so I think there, there is a contract that has been broken across all, across the entire industry, the contract between artist and gallerist, the contract between collector and, the, the, all of these social contracts that, that sort of made the art business a much more polite and nice place have been broken. Um, and they've been broken because no one has sort of stood there and said, is there a different path? Can we build a different relationship? Um, and I think it's possible, but it requires radical transparency with the artist. It requires understanding and openness of a system, which I have found gallerists to be unable to have. Um, and it requires a flexibility of deal-making in the structure to build artists because this system is built for a particular kind of journey and if that journey not is, 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 does not fit the playbook then the artists are mostly thrown out and there's a lot of good art and good artists thrown out because they don't fit the narrative they don't fit the sort of this bias and i you know i think that a lot of there's a lot of artists out there who have not been and I mean properly supported from a moral standpoint or an ethical standpoint. I mean properly supported from a pragmatic standpoint, from really understanding what artists need. And I've had so many situations, Hildy, where I bought work from an artist and then some gallery has said, don't, he's a bad guy, go, run away. And the artist has literally ghosted me, literally mm. ghosted me. Or, and then three years later, you know, I sometimes receive a call from that artist and said, you know, I made a terrible mistake. I went to this gallery, you know, and then, you know, or they just disappear because no one is really willing to do the homework. I was, I, I got a call from an artist last week introduced by a good gallery, small gallery in Germany. And the artist was living in New York and they were like, well, I understand investment and speculation. I understand what you do. I said, do you, have you seen my gallery website? She said, I didn't know you had a gallery. I said, who are some of the favorite artists who I've worked with, who I finance? And she says, oh, I don't know. So, like, she called me, but she had ne not done even 
five minutes of research mm. into who I was, what I do, hadn't listened to an interview, hadn't listened to, well, I read this article, does it sound right to me? Well, I listened to this interview, you know, I've listened to Stefan's voice. Maybe there's some dissonance here, maybe there's something else going on. Yeah. And I think, you know, one of the, one of the takeaways from listening to Matt is it takes a lot of research and homework to understand the dynamics of the business. What I find when I talk to many people in the business, galleries, collectors, they don't even spend 10 minutes going to my Instagram to actually look at that link, simcore.la, to see what I do. I spent a lot of money on design work to make it nice so everyone could actually go there and succinctly, within a 10 to 20 minute period, just get an idea of what I do, what I've done, the level of, and no one does it. This is a tragedy of the art world we live in today. I'm a, I'm a relatively busy guy. I have 45 people working for me. I have a proper operation. I have, I'm with my son watching horse riding. I'm, I went to see Desert X yesterday, opening this amazing biennial in the desert, in the Pontus. All these things I did yesterday, driving around, listening to your podcast. I took the time to respectfully understand your voice. Hildy and I have a relationship. We've had a, an up and down relationship, but I'm like, you know what? I need to listen to who Hildy is before I get on the, before I do this call with her. And I need to understand who are these two people who I'm about to have a conversation with right. out of respect. And after listening, I have a lot of respect. I understand who you are much more. I'm not going to say I do completely. And I think the art business moves with such stupidity and such a <laughs> lack respect that it's a business that that is and I, I don't think this is just the art business I think in general we live under a social construct a political social economic constructor that that operates under these conditions which is incredibly dangerous for a democracy for the well-being of our citizens for the well-being of our world I think this affects everything and I think the art industry and culture essentially represents sort of the elites of the world. Art is a vessel that distributes ideas at scale throughout, throughout contemporary culture and throughout history. Very important because this vessel essentially is the scaffold upon which ideas are carried through time. Right. So, so, so if we treat art in this way, then what it does, it trickles down. It's both a reflection and a mirror of what our system is, our social, political, economic system is, our construct. But also, if we don't nurture it and fix it, it will have implications that will reverberate like a, like, like a seismic shock through generations to come. And we, yeah. can, and we can use art and the culture industry as a way to repair these things because ideas are amazing things. They scale. They replicate. They're like viruses. And viruses in a positive way. They're not, I'm not using it in a negative way. Mm -hmm. And they can, they can repair social contracts. So I think, you know, not to be overly serious we have certain people who actually do their homework have a responsibility to question these things and the big gallery system which is effectively a reflection of monopoly capitalism uh the big art fair system which is a reflection of monopoly capitalism which is a form of capitalism that 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 is is it, it, it no longer serves anyone it, it doesn't even serve themselves you know, you know, needs to be fixed. Yeah, in my opinion. Yeah, Stefan, I wanted to bring it back to. And by the way, uh, thanks for sharing the perspective there. I feel like you know we're in agreement on most of that. I do think people have an obligation to do their homework 
and find the lack of that often. And for the audience, I think I want to level set by just saying this idea of financing the artist, working capital, supporting the artists, this is not something that has no precedent that's just being done by radical people. This was the mantra of Leo Castelli, who I imagine is someone that you've researched a lot and understood. You know, in the book by Michael Shearson, Boom, it talks about how Leo would break his back to, to pay his artists, would go into debt, would give steep discounts in the beginning because he really believed in supporting those artists from financing their studios. Um, and thinking about this in a way, I would imagine a lot of big galleries now, mid galleries, and especially the small ones, they don't have the excess capital to do that for their artists. And I'm just curious, do you think that we can't require anything in this industry? It's so goddamn unregulated. But do you think that galleries should adopt this standard of supporting with working capital their artists more broadly than it is now? Um, do you think that'll lead to a healthier ecosystem? I think it's very difficult because this, because these guys are competing with mid-sized galleries and monopoly ga and huge gallery systems, whereby they the accepted conventional wisdom is you go to an art fair to buy good art. Uh, you know, I think it's very, I think it's, for many of them it's very difficult because the working capital conditions not favorable and collectors do pay slowly. I think it's easier said than done. Um, I think a lot of this conversation might even go towards collectors and say, you know what, good art is not expensive art, and bad art is not cheap art. And to encourage people to collect differently, you know, to, to and even if you don't have relations to galleries, to go to spaces that are, you know, I go to in San Francisco, and I know this is not that re not that relevant, but there's um, Nyad Art Center and Creativity Explored. That supports. I, I love Creativity Explored. I love that place. Exactly. It's an amazing place. You can go with $1,000 and build a collection and begin your collecting experience in this place. And the experience is interesting because you get to go to thousands, hundreds of works of art and start to make a selection. You start to curate your own selection without much risk. Right. So I think there are a lot of, there, there are a lot of gateways that are actually much better for people to pursue than spending ten thousand dollars going to an art fair. Uh, you, you know, where you know, I think you can change the way people collect. Uh, I think you know, change how people accumulate social value because a lot of the system they're not really collecting art. They're basically getting social entertainment. Trophy. You know, yeah, trophies. Yeah, it's not just it's not just trophies denotes this like idea of collecting Picasso and but it's social value at the lowest level of the food chain. You know, it's you know social value at the top of the food chain is a basket. Social value at the bottom of the food chain is being like considered a great collector uh, because a small gallery has decided to tell the artist that you're a great collector because. In order to keep the artist, they have to make you a great collector because there's a guy next door at the art fair booth telling the same artist that they know better collectors and that your collectors are shit collectors because they flip art or they're speculative or they're collectors on the board of a museum. But it's like, what board? It's like ICA Miami or some, you know, podunk nonprofit or one of the multitude of private uh, foundations in China, you know, or, you know, but... You know, the artists don't know anything. So, you know, the galleries go and tell the artists, oh, I sold it to a great collector and they're placing it with a museum. 
I'm like, they're not placing with a museum. A museum board takes three months to make a decision. You know, but th there's all of this stuff bandied about by neophyte collectors, small young galleries, and the artists, it's great. They get, you get to have a drink, and you get to tell your peer group that a museum bought your work, and they placed it with a collector. It's all a bunch of bullshit, total hogwash. But, you know, makes everyone happy, so they're like, well, you know what? You know, it continues. Um, and I see it all the time, but over long distances, the cracks appear because you start looking at the resumes of the artists and you start actually looking at what museum in, in, in distribution looks like. Museum distribution is very complex. I mean, you know, the Perez Museum has not been able to take, has not been able to take assets because their registrars are overwhelmed, because they're so underfunded. So when you're actually talking about real museums, donating stuff to museums, it's not like some guy walking around an art fair telling a young gallery that they'll make a promised gift. Those gifts never end up happening. Right. You know, it's like what? you In, in the five minutes you walked at the VIP preview for the art fair, not only did you buy a work, but you made a promised gift to a museum. I mean, what kind of museum? I mean, like, are you kidding me? I've always, Stefan, I've always thought this because the idea of a gallery's hierarchy of sales and there's this, like, thought out there that, Galleries always want to sell to a museum, right? That's what they prefer. Sell to a museum first, and then if a collector's lucky, they might get access in these art fair settings. And it's like, well, which museum? Because not all museums, as you're saying, are equal. <laughs> like, at what point does the value of being in a museum collection diminish when these museums are like private foundations of wealthy people and they're, you know... We're not talking about the Met. I'm going to tell you a true story. There, I won't mention names. There's an artist I really loved. Not many. I didn't work with him. He didn't want to work with me. He had multiple warnings. He ended up showing at a gallery. And the show at the gallery was weaker than his previous show. And I wanted the gallerist had promised me first pick. And they didn't end up giving me first pick. And I was a little upset because there was only one painting I liked in the show that I wanted, or two. About three weeks later, I got a call from a guy, and the guy asked me if I would buy this artwork that he bought five years ago so he could pay his invoice at this gallery that he just bought two paintings from, one which was donating to some shitty museum, mm -hmm. and that he had lost all his money in crypto, and he needed $10,000. And this guy, when I tell you, like... This guy is a crypto trader in, in like a college dorm, like 25. And the gallerist is a good friend of mine. I know him well. And I just couldn't. He told me the museum it was going to. And I confronted him on it. I was very upset. And I couldn't believe it. And I was like, well, I mean, this is not a museum. This is like, and he said, well, the, the, the artist is happy. I told him my place with a museum and he's a museum. And this is what's happening in the industry. So. I look at the business when I walk around offices and go to galleries and don't have access. I don't look at it like, gee, I'm blacklisted. I look at it like a, con like a confederacy of dunces, basically. I'm just like... I love that book. Yeah, it's an amazing book. But it's, it's, it, the level at which things are operating is so low level. It, you can't even explain it to the artists because the artists are convinced that the system functions in this way. But these artists are 25 years old. Many of them come from nothing. They don't understand the social construct of anything. They don't understand the difference between A and B. 
And this is both the tragedy of the business, but also the opportunity of the business. Um, and the opportunity of the business is so many of these people are attracted like, like moths to these flames. And they, they don't understand the difference between basically one environment and another. And you can't blame them because there's no construct in which they can learn that except time. But I can tell you that so much of the stuff happening, oh, every art fair you go to, every, like I donate a lot of work to museums. In the last year, I think I've given 60 works to museums. And when I say museums, the Broad in Michigan, the Ulrich, I give to museums all over the show, everywhere. I've given to just about every museum you can imagine. It's something that, that and I've given to museums internationally as well, which I don't get a tax deduction on. You know, I've given to museums in Germany and South Africa. Is It is an expensive, complex process. You have to go. You have to get the work judged by someone. That person's expensive. They charge $700 to $1,000 a work. They have to go to the IRS. They have to get board approval. It's a tremendous amount of work. It takes yeah. time. Then you have to negotiate who pays for the shipping of the work to the museum. So I think all of this stuff, when I go to the fair and I walk around, I'm a professional. Oh, it's, I sold some music. It's just bullshit. But it's see, just, this is what I mean. You were saying earlier, like, there is a game that to be played about, like, quote-unquote collecting art. What, and it's a construct, for sure. I'm not saying that it's real, but it's, I mean, it's a lot of smoke and mirrors, and it's a lot of bullshit, and it's a lot of lying, and it's a lot of posturing, and it's a lot of peacocking. But, like, for example, I'll share something, because I, I thought this was very interesting. Um, and I, should I use names? Uh, no, I won't use names. Um, a gallery um, sent me – no. There's two two instances, and I think you'll find both of these very amusing. A gallery sent me um, an announcement of an artist show with a checklist with prices of the artist's work, right, which is usually kind of an indicator that they might be considering you as a potential buyer, right? And so I read everything. I'm kind of excited because I actually do like the artist's work. And I, as on a lark and sort of as a sarcastic joke, because I know the bullshit of the game, I write the art dealer back and I say, hey, I'm super interested in one of these works. I would I would love this one, but if this one isn't available, I'd also like this one. Are either of them available? And she, the dealer gets back to me about two, three, day, three, two, three days later saying, oh, but, you know, she's European. Oh, but you must understand so much institutional interest right now. We can't make anything available. And I, I wrote her back, and I just, I said to her, I was very straightforward. I mean, I know this woman. I've had coffees with her at the Mezzaplatz outside of Art Basel. I just said to her straight up, then why did you send me the PDF with the checklist with the prices? Like, why did you even bother doing that? Then the second story, 
you know how all these art dealers, they love to talk about how they really care about artworks going to collectors who truly love and value their artist's work and will be good patrons of the art over time and take care of it and blah, 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 right? So, again, I get a checklist with, you know, PDF, with, you know, the whole catalog, with all the work, prices, everything. I go straight to the owner of the gallery and I say, hey, so-and-so happens to be not only my peer, but a dear friend of mine who I've come up with as an artist and I've known since I started in the art world. It would mean so much to me to own an artwork by her. Are any of the works in the show available? And once again, just flat out rejected. And it's like, what's the point of you guys sending me this stuff? And I'm like, I'm not saying, you know, I'm not you. I'm not, um, I'm not, you know, Beth DeWoody. I'm not, uh, uh, Eli Broad, RIP. But like, I'm a known quantity in the art world and I have a small, art collection, but it's a very loved, very cherished, and very well-protected collection of art. And to just be treated that way, it, it, it bothers me on a, like, emotional level, but beyond that, the, ho- the helicopter view is that I look at it and I understand that like these businesses are operating in this realm of faux scarcity just like you're talking about where you know they're really interested in these hot young whatever artists but hey whatever happened to mid-career artists who are actually the ones who are by now are the hot shots who are probably producing some of the best work they're ever going to make in their lives, it's like they've completely forgotten about their artists that have been on their roster for years and years because they just want these pump-and-dump, hot, young artists. Yeah, I'm going to interrupt you. They don't want them. They have no choice. The collector class essentially demands and consumes in a very specific way. We have a very undeveloped collector class. We've got a collector class that the system has taught like a dog. You don't do this. You do this. You behave this way. This collector class has basically understood that in order to game the system, this is what you need to do. All those collectors, most of them that you see at these fairs and stuff, are just gaming the system. They're not even They're people whose job it is to do this. They get social value, they go out, they travel, they have a nice meal, they join the board, they cluster together in their group, they make money and profit off it. But they're not complex people. The collector class defines the way the galleries can operate because they're the ones who are writing the checks. And the galleries don't have client bases and aren't developing client bases outside of these systems. So 
So there are a few things to unpack here. Number one, this idea that things are placed at museums within five minutes is completely incorrect. Anyone who knows institutions, and I know institutions because I have given work to institutions from the Hammer, I've given work to Mocha, I've given work to MCA Shikai, I've given work to just about every museum you can think of. It's like these curators, and I know the curators, they are overwhelmingly busy, underfunded, yeah. under pressure. There's no way they're like buying at the rate that the galleries are saying they're placing work at. What they're saying is some collector, and they don't even know, has told them a story that they b believe. And this is especially with the smaller galleries. The bigger galleries are much more sophisticated. They're totally different operations. They have entities within them that just deal with institutional sales. But I digress. But I think that, I think the unfortunate thing is in my gallery, I sort of thought people are like, you're a hypocrite. You open a gallery, you always criticize galleries. And I thought about like, what can I do differently? I have a first come, first serve rule in the gallery. I make the material, I don't make all the material available. I keep a couple, a little, a few paintings for myself because I'm a collector as well. My collection is as equally important to me as my gallery business. And then I put the stuff out there that's available and I have a price on it. Whoever commits first buys the work. There's five day invoice payment terms. If you're not paid within five days, I reserve the right to sell it to someone else. And I do if someone else wants it. I don't even try and figure out who's who and what's what, because you know what? To figure out who's who and what's what is a business unto itself. That's what the CIA is there for. That's what the FBI is there for. That's what the National Security, that's what the NSA is there. They specialize in analyzing who people are. I, as an individual who have lived in many countries, traveled the world, know thousands of people, I'm relatively well known. I can't even figure out who people are. It takes time. You can't tell me these people, he's a good collector. They met them for five minutes on the art fair. I know this because sometimes I say to a friend of mine, hey, do me a favor, I really want this artwork. These people don't even know the artist. There's a gallery here, this is the artist name, can you go buy it? They go to the fair, they buy the materials, some of the most impossible material. The gallery sort of thinks like, oh, this sounds good. This person looks like a good collector. There's no knowledge, there's no actual research. No one's saying, is Simkiewicz a good collector? No, he's a bad guy because we, we read he's a bad guy analyze the situation. So I think there's a total poverty of quality, of quality information and quality distribution. And also someone like yourself should be able to access this work. I don't know what game they're playing, but that game could be a multitude of things. Instead of saying, you know, if we sold it to someone else, they, we have a deal with them. We have a side deal with them. Who the hell knows? You just don't know what's going on. You could have a guy who, who bought something with, there's so many things that, that don't go in. Instead of just saying it outright. I say to people, is it available? I say, yes, no, there's no rubbish. And you know, I've done 42 solo shows now in three years. I think I've had three works come up at auction, which is nothing. We're talking about, you know, this is over exhibiting 500, 600 works of art. Because I believe that the randomness of setting a price and basically having the market dynamic sort itself out is a much more effective way than trying to figure out who's good and who's bad. Because those people are experts at explaining to you why they're good. They're like poker players. They've figured out a way to game the system. You go give your $5,000 or $10,000, you join an acquisition committee of a major museum. It's cheap to join a, a tangential acquisition committee of a major museum because joining a board costs money. But when you go to the gallery and tell them you're on the, on the board of X museum or Y museum and you're just on the acquisition committee for works on paper or photography or video, 
and it costs you 5000 The gallery's not going to delineate what board you're on. They're going to tell the artist, I sold it to a board member at MoCA or at Hammer or at whichever museum you talk about. So, so because they don't want to, they, for them, they go to bed at night and want to think that as well. So, and they want to tell the artist that because if the artist is successful, they've got a bigger gallery breathing down the neck saying, I can place it to institutional collectors. So it's kind of like the story of myth-making. The ogre becomes a troll. The troll becomes a giant. The giant becomes a king. You know, it's like everyone becomes inflated in the system because the system is not only competing against each other for capital, it's also competing each other against each other for the distribution and sale of social value. And social value is itself a commodity that has an exchange value that isn't monetary, but in this system has an immense value. Oh, but I have to tell you, I played this really fun, fun, fun game. Um, People don't, I mean, I can't even reveal all the, I really enjoy myself going to art. I mean, I'm an artist through and through, and if I revealed all the mischief that I got up to at art fairs, I wouldn't be allowed to do I wouldn't be welcome anymore, so I can't. But I have to tell you this thing that I did. I had so much fun. I oh, This just really gave me a lot of joy. Um, two, two, two freeze Londons ago, <laughs> I was hanging out with um, a dear friend of mine who is, uh, you know, a, an exquisitely beautiful woman from Saudi Arabia. She's, you know, loosely related to the Saudi royal family, but, you know, not directly. So when she comes to London, she's having a good time. She's wearing her fashion. She's doing this. She's doing that. She thinks the art world is hilarious. She doesn't give a shit about it, but she knows the game. And at the time, I was uh, talking to some documentary filmmakers about potentially working with them on a TV series about the art world. And they didn't, they just like couldn't believe me. Like they didn't believe like how ridiculous it was. And I was like, come with me to freeze. And we'll play some game. We'll do some role playing in the booth. And I, one of them was this young guy who, you know, was probably, he was like the assistant. Okay. So he looked like a, you know, like a Zuckerberg. He was wearing like a black hoodie, shitty jeans, shitty tennis shoes, uh, you know, bad backpack, whatever. But we walk in with my ultra-wealthy, drop-dead gorgeous Saudi (laughs) girlfriend who starts going around telling all the mega galleries that she's his art advisor because his startup just IPO'd and (laughs) the gates of heaven opened up wide let me let me fucking tell you that he 
could buy anything he wanted at David Zwerner right there and then. They were like on their hands and knees. And this poor young man had no idea. And so I kept, I, you know, I gave him things to say. So I said, keep saying things like, this would look good over my couch. And I, and he would say these things. And you know that these are like the most offensive things that you could say to like an art dealer. And they were like, yes, this would look great. And I said, tell them you have a teal couch. And he, and they were like, this would look great with a teal sofa. And like, you know, my, my girlfriend from Saudi, she's like, oh, honey, no, this is trash. And it, you know, she doesn't care. So she's like destroying everything in the booth at David's Werner. And she like rips him out of there and they're like heartbroken. And he told me like, I think he, we were texting maybe like four or five months ago. He said, Hildy, they email me on a weekly basis still. And they're still trying to sell me stuff. I've I've had a few real clients like that. And it's amazingly almost offensive to me how, I mean, you know, I've had clients who really, you know, who I've had some serious people. And it's amazing. It's remarkable. And, you know, and, you know, I think the business uh, is wild to watch. I just want to unpack a few questions that I didn't answer from both of you. One, the interest rate question, Hildy. And the other, going back to Matt's comment about Leo Castelli and the business model, you know, there's an amazing book by Philip Hook, who was a specialist in old masters at Sotheby's. Um, it's called Rogue's Gallery. So Paul Rouen, Durand Ruel, Ambrose Boyard, Paul, you know, who was Paul Cezanne's dealer, Henry, the Kahnweilers, uh, you know. Oh, the- I've heard of this book. I've heard of this book. I haven't read it. I've heard of it. Right. The late Victorian art dealers, Ernest yes. Gamba, the Duveen, the Wildensteins, the Rosenberg brothers, who, yes. you know, presented Picasso in the 20s. All of these systems essentially were very simple systems. They would go to the artist studio, they'd buy their stock up front, and they would market their stock. Their artists had working capital. So, like, in a sense, what I do is a throwback to, to pre-1940s art dealing. There's nothing innovative about it. I'm not a disruptor. I just think that this business model of these of these historical dealers is a much more effective way of operating because it actually advances capital to the artists up front, which basically creates a more stable economic structure for them to produce higher quality material. Collector class is interested in mostly one thing. If they're very rich, they want to buy a very expensive asset that everyone knows that will hold their economic value. Or they want to buy something very cheaply so they can tell their friends how it's worth a million dollars. Or they can buy something for, you know, or it becomes a trophy and they buy it. The collector class is not very sophisticated. They don't know about art. They go to an art fair, they got an advisor. The idea, there are good advisors, sure, but those advisors have a shtick as well. Like, there is, there are very few people in the system who are open to doing homework that are not sort of mimicking and spreading this mythology of what the of what art collecting is and what it isn't. Art collecting is a much bigger industry, much broader than the art world even understands. 
it, it goes beyond an art fair, way beyond. And I think this is the conventional wisdom that, that, that should be challenged. Let me Everyone, ask a question. Are you friends with Dave Kordansky? I am friends with Dave Kordansky, yes. It's funny because um, I randomly got into this exact conversation with him one day. Um, I mean, because I come, you know, I come from very little means and have, you know, scraped and clawed my way up, you know, up from I just want to say, I offered you a show a year ago, and you still, you st- I, I, at my gallery, you still, that offer still stands. <laughs> Thank you, Stefan. But wait and listen. Um, but, so, because I have never, be, because I never thought of um, collecting art in financial terms until I moved to New York in 2013, and then it it still took a while for that to sink in. And then I had to sort of learn about the market and I had to, you know, work within the gallery system and watch how every single, you know, role fed into the other. And I had to see, you know, whatever. It took me a very long time to sort of understand what the art market is. And now I'm studying uh, the economy, which is something that sort of, it sets the maison scene of the art world in of itself. Um, but my point is that when I think of collecting art, if you were to come over to my house right now, you would look at my ceramic collection, for example. And you would look at my ceramic collection as well if you came to my house. And I think that you would probably have a hard time distinguishing what I bought at Goodwill, what I literally, you know, San Francisco, back when I lived in San Francisco, had some great trash, let me tell you. Uh, um, You know, what I bought at Creativity Explored, gifts that my artist friends have given me because it was they thought it was trash or they hated it, Um, you know, and then things that I've just made over the last few years that I would not call particularly fabulous, but I love nonetheless. Um, And then that's just my ceramics collection. And then I have, you know, paintings that I found at Goodwill that I love just as much as paintings that I've been given by artists, paintings that I've bought from artists, paintings that I've bought from galleries, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, my my collecting is sort of this amalgamation of a part of my soul and my spirit. But, I mean, don't get it twisted. I also collect fucking rocks. I mean, maybe I'm a hoarder. Who knows? I mean, I like to think I I curate things nicely, but, you know, I like beautiful things, and I like to 
live with them because they're a part of who I am. Um, and But I think that a lot of people, maybe because they um, are afraid of beauty, I think I, you really inspired me a long time ago. You did this talk with um, – What's his name? The most famous artist. What's his name? The most famous artist. Maddie Mo. Maddie Mo. Yeah, sorry, I couldn't remember his name. But you had this line that I swear changed. It it really changed my probably my perspective on beauty. At as a woman, you had this line. It was on YouTube. I watched it on YouTube where you said, you know, I think it's deeply, I'm, you know, I'm going to misquote you exactly, but you basically said, I think it's deeply misogynistic that we've sort of um, cut out beauty or sort of overlooked beauty in art and craft and relegated that to the feminine um and you know therefore a lot so much art has become about ugliness and i know that i'm misquoting you i mean i can narrow that down basically there are two criticisms of art that fancy people will say oh i think it's too decorative or yes. it's a little bit it's a little bit ethnic for my taste. That are basically two of the most misogynistic and racist things you can say about art. And I think you know racism, misogyny, all of these things that that uh, undermine people, you know, delivered in ways that are totally palatable. And these adjectives are used by curators, by collectors, by huge gal- gallerists to undermine things. Uh, and the consumption of art by minorities. I'm going to roll here because we're going to get into an interesting conversation. If, can I interrupt you for a second? Yeah, go ahead. So, so, so these things are fundamentally racist, misogynistic. And what we've seen is essentially the big gallery system and the commodity art system take in female artists, LGBTQ artists, black artists, artists of color. But it's taken that in a very specific way. Continue, and we're going to come back to this. Matt, I want you to bring me back to this in a minute. Yep. Yeah, I got you. Okay. So, but anyway, so I remember watching this video, and mind you, I'd come, you know, one of my many stops on the Yellow Brick Road of my education was at San Francisco Art Institute that really de-emphasized beauty and, uh, you know, for lack of a better term, like, decimated the idea of anything being decorative, anything like, God forbid something were too feminine, too pretty, too girly, too flowery, too too anything. And it had this damaging short term, you know, it's not like it's permanent, you know, like brain damage or anything but it had a short-term damaging um 
effect on my psyche about how I was thinking about art and how I was looking at art. And there was a period where I actually would tell people, I don't like painting. I, I think painting is over-glorified um, graphic design. I mean, I used to be such a... Was, was that with was Gordon running the SFAI then? I don't remember, but I was yeah. such a I was so brainwashed, and and when you when I heard you say that, and it's funny that it was a man that said it, um, but when I heard you say that, I mean I thought about that for days and days and this is right before I was about to open my gallery in Los Angeles and in a way that message that little seed that you planted in my head set me free to start to like art certain art again, that I wanted to like, that I didn't feel I had the permission to like. And I guess I've never told you that. So thank you for sort of disseminating that idea out there. Um, and it was, yeah, it was kind of a big moment because I think I would have never showed a lot of the artists that I showed if it wasn't for you putting that idea out in that conversation. Thank you. Very nice of you to say. I never know how to say it. I never know how to take it when someone says something nice about me in the audience. <laughs> it's so rare, but thank you. I appreciate that. Stefan, let me ask you. I want to jump back to that conversation in a second. You the want one to that talk you... about the Castelli thing, too. So yeah, so we got to jump out. One quick question, and maybe just in a succinct answer. So there's clearly a collector education problem. We're in full agreement here. What do you think a prospective collector that's interested in getting into the art market that has a disposable income, what's an actual first step that they should take on the path of, let's just say, doing it right? You know, what does that path of education look like for that initial period for someone, in your estimation? I think there is a collector education problem because the system essentially is so focused on training collectors to bend their expenditures according to how their system works. I think collectors collectors with expendable income, should, you know, and it's difficult because these guys have jobs and they're busy and they oftentimes don't have taste. It's not like it's not like, you know, some you know, you yeah. go to people's houses. How many rich people's houses do you go to that are well decorated that even have a nice <laughs> very few, very few. Very few. So it's very difficult to, you know, they're very confident because they have disposable income. So they, they reckon because they make a lot of money that everything they do and think is correct. You have fundamental flaws that are in place. But I think it's just to, if you're interested, just to look, to just go look at museums, look at galleries, to just see art, go to outsider art museums, j j just to see and to buy things inexpensively. Like, right. you know, you fly first class to England, to London at 12,000 pounds. Buy stuff that will be worthless. Experiment. Right. See what things look like on the wall. You know, you know, make, you know, but I think most of these people, they just, the idea of losing money on art is something that the system has trained them is unacceptable. Right. So the system has trained them to drain liquidity from their collections, not to lose money. The system has created an art business that ironically, as much as it talks about protecting the artists, 
have financialized the art industry completely, including the institutions, by creating the system. So buy art to decorate, buy art to use, buy art that's not precious, and just begin, begin that way. And it's a process of seeing. It's a very difficult thing to answer. But as well, you know, there are people in the business who are trying to reach out to these people and make it easier because the minute these people go into the system and walk around an art fair for the first day, and they realize how difficult it is. They realize how arrogant it is. They right. realize how, you know, so a lot of them are, you know, some of them are like, okay, well, this is interesting. I'm going to figure out how to play this game. Fuck these people. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to join the board of a museum. And others literally just walk and never engage yeah. and then go and buy their posters or their art of, you know, or their fly fishing art or their, you know, so I think the art business has actually rejected many more clients than it has. So as much as the industry is successful and big, I think it can be 10 times bigger. Oh, my God. I believe that. Uh, yeah, amen. I mean, I, I just know my peer groups, people that, that, are, that I went to school with, that have no interest in the art, when I bring them into the, to the fold, let's go check out a show or come see this. It's like, God, so many of them just say, what the fuck am I looking at? Like this? No, they don't like any part of it. And it's a shame because they would, in theory, like to become collectors. I think that's a kernel in many people's souls out there. But the barriers to entry, the barriers to collecting in the industry is so high, and it's, the it's arrogance is sitting there. And I, and I very, I'm not arrogant. Well, I'm arrogant, but I'm not arrogant. You know, mm -hmm. I have my, my my arrogance is lent to those who are arrogant, but to those who are not, <laughs> you know, you know. And I think that's one of the reasons why I'm so hated in the business. Because if you meet me and you're arrogant, I'm going to be more arrogant. Right. But if you don't have arrogance, I'm not going to be there. But I, I agree with you. I think the business has pushed away so many people. And this is the opportunity. This, for me, is very exciting. I mean, look, it's a nice-sized business. I'm not the most light guy in the business. It's not like collectors are lining up to collect from me. I have a business. I have 45 people working for me. That means I'm doing something correct, plain and simple, on paper. You know? The, you know? And I think, and that's because I say hello to people. I greet people. I welcome them in. I figure out how do I make, how do I make seeing art easy for them or acceptable? How do I not be judgmental? You know? I'm judgmental in a sense, but I think the way the system works throws out so many people who could five, six years later be collectors. And also, I develop collectors. I meet guys, and it, I build a relationship with them. It takes me five years to sell them something. And then it begins. And then it begins slowly. And then they become huge collectors, but just like I develop artists. It's not like, it's not like you have to buy something in your one. I think the business has done a very bad job at collective development and education because the system is so big and scaled. It's so integrated. The museums are integrated with the art fairs, integrated with the gallery system, integrated with the big collectives. That, that matrix is so big and powerful that it suits itself, but it doesn't suit itself to unravel. So, so in, in my book, you sort of build a different system, a parallel system that does it differently and very effectively. But the market dynamics are enormous. The interest in art are enormous. They are breathtakingly large. And that opportunity is good for the art fairs and the big gallery systems who can continue expansion or, or not. But what's missing is how do you bring in how do you bring in ninety percent of the potential collector bases that, that, that aren't there? And that is the whoever figures that out is gonna um Yeah, they win. They're, they're gonna win. So Stephen, you're talking about how some of the galleries are bringing in 
more of the marginalized communities of artists in the past, but in a specific way. You want to elaborate on that because I'm very curious yeah. to hear your thoughts on it. I'm just going to, I just want to get Hildy's earlier question off the deck about liquidity and interest rates. Oh, sure, yeah. Very simple. Interest rates are high. Liquidity is being drained from the system in every sector. It's going to affect the art market. It has affected the art market. As much as you see the auction numbers doing well and the art fairs doing well, you know, what the auction houses should do, they should only put a number of sale when the sale has been paid for. The gallery sales, they can go and say they sold well at the fair. Has, it, has that invoice been paid? I would hazard to say many of those invoices are late. Many of the, I would say the capital is drained from the system, is being drained from the system, and yes, that affects every single expenditure. So, so, and I think it's going to become, it, it is becoming and will become a much harder environment to operate in the next two, three years. Right. Yeah. So, I just want to get that off the chest. Sure, I agree. Okay. So, so I'm going to I'm going to take you down a rabbit hole. Mm -hmm. Okay. So there's a lot of holes in this theory, but there's theory. In 2008, we had a devastating economic crisis. We had Barack Obama as president. Barack put in 750 billion dollars, basically, to reinflate the economy. That money went primarily to banks and big institutions, middle class. Investors, middle-class homeowners were abandoned. Obama should have printed $2 trillion and should have frozen mortgages and should have saved the middle class. He did not do that. Deficit hawks in the Democratic Party basically convinced him not to, and it was a tragedy because it took us six, to, six seven years to basically climb out of the 2008 uh, crisis. That recovery was very slow and was very damaging to the American middle class, which basically opened up the gates of hell to which Donald Trump and the right-wing Republican Party marched. It was economically devastating. Socially, we had simultaneously a construct of social media developing and accelerating Facebook, Instagram, all of these companies. And social media in those early days was a much more effective uh, communication tool intra-party. Intra what I believe happened culturally is the following. There was a huge dislocation in capital between minorities, women, men. There's always been a disparity between men and women, but the 2008 crisis basically dislocated that much further and really increased that dislocation. So what you saw emerge in the post-2008 financial crisis is the beginning of what I call an enormous collective bargaining experiment that was basically managed across lines of social media. Most collective bargaining experiments that have, most collective bargaining that has occurred prior have been organized through corporations and the unions that have basically fought for equality and power of the working class. The 2008 post-financial crisis sees this enormous scale society level collective bargaining experiment that goes across lines of the Me Too movement, the Black Lives Matter movement, the LGBTQ movement, where you, where basically you have to fix this huge dislocation in capital. What happens as, this, as these movements emerge, the corporations at scale basically understand that there's effectively money to be made. They can monetize these because what's happening is their markets are becoming more narrowly defined and specifically defined. So they can target all these sort of narrow audiences and they can utilize these mechanisms effectively to target marketing and they can sort of start to sell equality, et cetera. So they start to commoditize as all things, have, all things get commoditized in the neoliberal, global, monopoly capitalist economy in, in, into these systems. 
So this leaves us with the, with how cultural production begins to serve the sort of the distribution system of monopoly capitalism. The kind of art that we saw emerge, essentially, in my opinion, and we're talking about 10 years later, is essentially social realism. If you look at most of the work made by artists of color, by, women, by female artists, if you look at Christina Band, for example, or you look at Anand Ofite or Amwaka Boaf or, or these people, it's social realism. If you look at the social realism that was produced in Russia, in North Korea, in other, it's, it's a very, when you start to think about the form of production that took over the consumption and by, by both collectors and the distribution, the gallery and the institutional system, most of that momentum came from social realism. It's a really interesting way to think about how the world culturally reacted to, to, to representing these movements. The big question we have to answer is, has there been a radical improvement in, that there has, you know, art that is ethnic and decorative is still submerged. You know, I collect and support artists in Zimbabwe, for example, people you don't know probably, Troy Makaza, Julio Rizzi, one of the better-known artists is Mofat Takidawa, who works with Keys. So the kind of consumption that the art system has consumed is quite specific. Again, huge generalization, but an interesting way of thinking about what kind of cultural production emerged in service of these movements and whether the cultural production distribution that emerged in service of these movements is actually in service of these movements. Just food for thought. Very general, but an interesting kind of opener to think about the topic. Well, okay. Uh, I'm going to go on a rabbit hole, but I'll keep my rabbit hole shorter, probably because I have thought about it a little less than you have thought about what you just said. But um, I would add, not detract from anything that you've just said, but we are watching um, a very interesting full force swing back into abstraction in art. Um, there, I mean, the, I would say the two sort of primary um, hot trendy movements that we're seeing in art right now are abstract paintings where there's sort of figuration hiding within abstraction because we haven't fully let go of figuration or figurative painting painters who can't let go of being figurative painters because that's what they are, but they're going in the sur surrealism vein. And I, you know, am thinking a lot about how Social media has actually in so many ways, social media and the corporatization of the woke movement have actually turned out to be way more divisive than they have been unifying. And I find it very interesting that as we move forward in this, as we march forward in art history, you know, in terms of trends, 
it's like we're moving away from the what you're calling sort of like a social realism and heading into back into something more abstract and way less literal because I think we've been so ripped apart um, online, we've been ripped apart. Politically, we've been ripped apart. You know, there's absolutely no consensus about what reality is anymore. Um, and it reminds me a lot every time you open a art history book and you read about post-World War II and you read about the Gutai movement or you read about, you know, uh, abexers that survived World War II, uh, especially the immigrants. Uh, that that came and were making those works and those people you know were they had no words <laughs> there were no words left there was nothing literal to say anymore and there was nothing but something that was abstract and animalistic and visceral and bodily and, you know, abstract. And I think it's very interesting that we've gone through so much. And I, I, sadly, you know, the utopian idea of what we thought social media would do what we thought wokeness would do what we all it has all sort of turned in on us and it has done the opposite of unify us it has done the opposite of bring people together it has done the opposite of making the world less racist less sexist less you name it and here we are in you know 2023 going back into surrealism and abstract expressionism. Well, I think, again, I think that production is a market dynamic because effectively production essentially scaled too rapidly. And they, hello, are you there? Oh, yeah, yeah we're just listening. And, uh, and production basically scaled too rapidly to kind of, uh, you, 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 you know, so that basically they're overproduced on the social realism. So that from a market perspective, they're like, oh, let's try this stuff. We've got too much of it. But, you know, you mentioned, uh, you know, an artwork by Jade Fajutini that I think in one of your podcasts that you saw, and you thought it was a, not a particularly good painting. Am I correct or not? Yeah, I do. Yes. And, and I've seen the work as well. I saw it for the first time. Uh, I think I saw it uh, a while ago, and I was shocked. Uh, I had a very similar reaction to you, um, and I was surprised because it was, it, you know, it's just not, it's not particularly good abstraction. I think everything has become symbolic. So, like, the market is like, okay, we have overproduced this asset now, social realism. We're, we, you know, we're switching. We need to switch tax now, but we need the symbolic value of representation still in the mix, but because we basically created a, an excess of this kind of production, we're going to identify uh, you know, s- several artists that, that essentially represent effectively n- neoliberal values, and those will become the holders of symbolic value, which we can now trade. What's amazing is how effective symbolic value is traded within the system. What's super interesting is how capital and symbolic value essentially is lined up at such a high level of marketplace. 
I think that's very interesting. More interesting than the artwork, perhaps, but is how effective this system is. And another thing you mentioned in one of the podcasts that I listened to, Matt, I think it was you were talking about the you did a review of the donors uh, to the Democratic Party amongst the big gallery system, correct or not? Correct, yes. I, I think it's also pretty fascinating that across an industry this scaled and this big, that there there was no aberration there there none so it, it's you know it's interesting it's completely on one side of the division now that division is unfortunate because one could then say that all those people on the other side of the aisle are probably collecting much less than the people on the left side of the aisle one 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 could argue to say that collecting art in the system is much more lens towards liberals but, Repu- but Republicans and conservatives do collect as well, but they probably collect a, a very different kind of asset. So I think, again, qu- quality is not traded. And I think one of, the, one of the crazy, frightening things about where we are is that the effectiveness of the system is so integrated into capital at this point that it can whiplash you in one direction or another, and it's represented in the art industry. But also, there's so much capital chasing so few slots, and the big gallery system will sort of go and pick up an artist for its symbolic value, because within the system, it needs to do something, and they need to do it fast. So it's not like they meet Jade Fajitimi, who potentially is a phenomenally good artist, but she's a young artist. Maybe in five to (laughs) exactly so twelve years exactly so maybe in ten twelve years so instead of picking her up and being like let's develop her for ten years and help her become the great artist that she potentially could be and maybe she becomes an amazing artist we need to take this to market quickly because we don't have time to wait ten years we don't have we don't have the appetite or the capacity this is the problem with the system and because of it. She might never become a great artist because this work that she's making, you know, that is highly speculative, that's not good. She'll never leave behind because its attribution and market value is so significant that if she leaves it behind, she might leave behind her career. And the thing that she needs to make that's really good might never happen. But these are all conjectures. Um, but I think the shift towards neo-surrealism and abstraction is, is really, I think there's a real social, there's a real construct to why social realism became so apparent. Whereas I think the switch towards abstraction and neo-surrealism is a market dynamic as opposed to a, a construct that kind of emerges out of a socio-political, uh, dis- disruption in the sort of the fabric of our lives. I think this is purely a, a, a market dynamic of how do we get more symbolic value into the system, but in a marketplace that isn't oversaturated currently? So I think it's quite cynical, actually. Ugh. Ugh. Well, on well, on that note, you just um, you just buried my little rabbit hole. <laughs> but um, I Matt, uh... Matt, 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 what do you think of that? It's something that we've talked about on the podcast is the rapacious speed at which artists are accelerated in their career and then they leave work on, on, on the table. It's like they don't get a chance to develop in their craft in a real meaningful way. They are put onto the factory belt and sped up directly out of school. 
And it's unfortunate. It's something that Jerry or Hildy and I have discussed many times. We're missing something. Or who showed it? We went to go see uh, Rauschenberg's retrospective, right? Oh, yeah. So- At the Whitney? Yeah. And no, he- it was uh, Jasper John. Uh, Jasper John. And th- that guy went through like 30 different styles. That's the other point. It's stylistically. Artists aren't allowed to change. It's almost like no. they can find success in their 20s in a style, in a motif, in a format. They're beholden to it. Where look, at a, look, look at an artist I represent named Serge Tukwe-Klati. He does performance. He does installation. He does works on paper. He does drawings. He does abstract work. Remarkable. Like, I think, you know, I'm another analogy. The Israelis, you know, invented and, you know, turned the Sinai Desert into a rich agricultural zone through drip irrigation, through basically putting small amounts of water over long distances of periods of time uh, equally to basically turn desert into agricultural land. And I think what's happening now is essentially you find an artist and you flood the plains. And, you know, I think the key with emerging contemporary development is not capital. Everyone's got money today. Money is a, you know, America's natural resource is cash, is money. Russia's natural resource is oil and natural gas. Our natural resource is money. Period. The end. Those who have access to capital at the lowest cost, at the biggest scale, win in America. That is our oligarchy. Our capitalists are those who have access to capital. And those oligarchs are, we know who they are. They're at the top of the food chain. But I think the problem is, in the art industry, art develops over time. It requires time. You cannot develop an artist in six months. It's like a a whiskey needs 20 years in a barrel. And I think the problem is they need capital, but that capital is only allocated to them under very specific conditions that do not basically assist them in creating great cultural production and output in the big gallery They're rewarded for continuing to play the hits. You know, they're not incentivized to try a different path and to grow. Exactly. Exactly. You know why? That's why Jasper Johns has a retrospective at the Whitney. A hundred percent. You know? A hundred percent. They're not going to have the 50-year career. They're going to have the five-year career. Let me start. Or three. Or five months. I mean, some of the auction names that came to London just last week uh, who knows what'll happen next? Uh, One of them, Mika- Michaela Yearwood, Dan, or whatever. I mean, she's been on the market for a year and a half, two years. Like she's already at auction. We'll see. It's fine that she's at auction. The question is, is that, you know, does that work hold up? You know, I don't know. I mean, I mean, I a, a lot. I, I don't know. I don't know the work. I'm not going to comment on it. But specific. But but generally speaking, a lot of that work, when you see it within the big gallery system, and you see the institutions clamoring after it, it doesn't basically tell me the work's good. It tells me our institutions are bad, and it tells me our gallery system is rotten. Our big gallery system is rotten. Tell it tells me the opposite, and I think that's the that's the takeaway that collectors and people involved in the business can look at. They can sort of say, you know, are these structures as valid as we are trained to think they're valid? Because, of course, those structures want to train their collectors like dogs to behave. Sit, stand, go over okay. there, you go, know, go, go. <laughs> donate, bonad, run. And like, I'm like, you guys are fucking rich. You guys are successful. Don't let yourself be trained like a dog. 
go out and fucking build and collect and support and finance and take risks and experiment and change the way you live. And unfortunately, there are not that many voices out there who are willing to tell people that. But I do believe that there are enough who are, like yourselves, who are on the podcast, who are influential, who people are listening to. And I think that those collectors should be serviced in, a, in an adequate way. They should be treated well. They should be treated like customers, the great American dream. They shouldn't be trained like dogs. So, Stefan, we do have to wrap up here, but I just wanted to give you the floor at the end and kind of let us know what you're working on, how people can find you that are listening. Well, th- thank you, guys. Hildy, uh, you have a, I, I want to offer you a show in any of my galleries whenever you want. It would be an honor and a privilege. Matt, it's a pleasure to know you. And just, you know, if any of you want to learn more about me, go to my Instagram. Uh, there's a tree, simcore.la. You can see everything we do. The gallery is simkovitz.com. We have, uh, we have three galleries in the city now. We've got five spaces. We do beautiful work. And we show artists internationally. We have a big focus on emerging contemporary in Africa. We show things we don't sell. We show things we can sell. We show things we sell. Love art. You can always call me. I answer my messages. I take calls from anyone and everyone. And I love you guys. Thank you. Thank you so much for coming on. This was a really fun conversation. Yeah, absolute pleasure. We'll make sure everybody's listening. The link that Stefan just mentioned will be in the bio. So if you want to check out more, go ahead and click down. All right, Thanks, everybody. guys. All right. Love you. Appreciate your time. Thank you. Bye, guys. So Bye. Much. Bye. 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 And that was our conversation with Mr. Stefan Simkowitz. I hope everybody enjoyed. That was that was a wild one. And if you're still with us, yeah. Um, we just wanted to uh, again thank Stefan for right. his time, um, and also thank you for your time because that was probably the longest podcast episode one of yeah that we've put out um and i wanted to let everyone know especially um our art dealers our gallerists our artists who may be hiring or anyone really who may be hiring in the art world gagosian.com has officially opened up a job listing site um so head on over to the website it's very easy to navigate to job listings and sign up to post your job we have the attention of 125,000 of the most talented people in the art world who are just clamoring to work for you (laughs) (laughs) so the job board is on gagosian.com as jerry said yeah if you're a gallery looking for some assistance an artist looking for studio assistance any company that's trying to hire in the art world that's going to be the best spot um it's free for job applicants to look and review jobs is that right that's correct perfect and if you're posting a job it is a whopping ten dollars it's cheaper than NIFA. Cheaper than NIFA. <laughs> it's it's the cost of a latte and a peanut butter bar at Starbucks. Which is what your go-to order is. <laughs> so go do that. And as always, become a premium subscriber at Um 
We are an independent podcast, so if you could kindly just smash a five-star review for us and leave a comment and let us know what you thought about the show. A positive comment, of course. Please. All right, everybody. This has been Art Smack. Take care. See you later. See you on the internet. Bye.